0: Good evening and welcome to At Humber. I'm Claudia Kritschka. Today we look at the calls to action arising from the unfortunate residential school tragedy, how one northern Ontario city is trying to boost residency, and the latest developments in long-term care homes. All that and more coming up on today's show. The entire country has been reacting to the devastating discovery of the remains of 215 children at the site of a former residential school in Camp Loops, British Columbia last week. The discovery confirmed what Indigenous communities already knew, their stolen children will never come home. The discovery has reignited calls for the government to take action across the country Activists are demanding the recovery of more remains at former residential schools. Here in Ontario, the province's NDP, Somamaqua spoke to the Legislative Assembly about the tragedy earlier this week. At Humber reporter Tyler Cheese sat down with a Kingfisher Lake Band member to discuss what needs to happen now.
1: Minister Mamakwa, thank you for talking with me today. I know this has been a very difficult week for Indigenous communities across the country. How do you even begin to process the news from Kamloops last week? You
2: know, um, you know when we first learned of it uh, uh, late last week and uh, it took me, um, I guess, a few days to process it. It took me a uh, to, uh, couple of days to just understand it on how, um, uh, you know, how huge and how hurtful and how many people were, uh, you know, were in pain. And uh, a lot of people were reaching out. A lot of people were posting on their social media. And that's, it was like uh, people that the wounds, like the wounds were open again.
1: You spoke to the Legislative Assembly on Tuesday. Can you summarize what you said?
2: In the House, I, I said that we are united in our grief. I felt I needed to do something. So I did the, uh, the moment of silence and I was able to make a statement to honour uh, and acknowledge the uh, 215 children uh, that did not return home.
1: And I'm wondering if you can describe some of the emotions that you or members of your community have been feeling since last week.
2: You know, uh, it's really important that, uh, you know, I spoke to some survivors, uh, Uh, you know, of the residential schools. And um, when I was on the phone with them, uh, you know, I could feel uh, the heaviness when I was talking to them. I could feel uh, uh, the hurt, uh, the grief in their voice. Uh, When we talk about, you know, the death of our children is a crime against humanity. But Canada has never treated as such. All Indigenous people living today in Canada are survivors of Canada's tools of genocide. As a First Nations person, as an Indigenous person, as an Anishinaabe, this system was never built for me.
1: You use the word genocide and it seems like the Canadian public is finally accepting that that's what this is. Can you tell me why that's the appropriate word to describe this history?
2: Uh, that's the, the word from the beginning that uh, that First Nations have started using, that, that, that they've been using. And then I think uh, they try to, uh, you know, uh, governments try to put it in a word like uh, cultural genocide, but it's actually genocide. And I think uh, this is the appropriate word. This is the appropriate time where uh, we need to be able to uh, address that. And that's the real history of Canada. That is the real history of uh Uh, you know, of what's happening here. And uh, it is very appropriate. And uh, sadly, but that's the truth. We want to be a better country. We want to be a better uh, province, a better Ontario. We want to be a better, you know, a community. And that's, and we have to learn these truths. We have to learn these stories of the way the first peoples of Canada have been treated by settler governments.
1: And what do Indigenous communities need at this time?
2: We need to bring, you know, uh, uh, you know, fundamental changes that we need to do, uh, such as, um, you know, uh, like say funding, uh, resourcing for these searches at residential, former residential school sites for other remains. I think that's very key. I know one of the other things too is uh, because there's such a, Uh, you know, uh, healing that needs to happen within our First Nation communities, Uh, maybe perhaps, uh, you know, a healing initiative. Like we need a response to that Like uh, because a lot of people are hurting across the country.
1: What immediate actions do you want to see come out of all of this?
2: Yeah, I wrote that down before what I had asked for. One one was uh, the search of sites to be funded, to be uh, Indigenous-led, First Nation-led. A day of mourning and remembrance to acknowledge that within Ontario. Uh, And also an apology from the Pope and uh, Catholic Church and the churches involved.
1: Well, thank you, Minister, for sharing your thoughts with me today. I really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thank you, Tyler.
1: That was Ontario NDP MPP and Kingfisher Lake Band member Sol Mamakwa. Here at Humber College, President Chris Whitaker has also responded to this tragedy. A joint statement with Jason Sarite, the Dean of Indigenous Education, reads The college will work to acknowledge the truth about the genocide that occurred in Indian residential schools. For Humber Radio, I'm Tyler Cheese.
0: Over the Victoria Day long weekend, the Ontario government reopened long-term care homes to family and friends to see their loved ones. The reopening includes outdoor visits only with up to two guests per resident not including children. While no rapid antigen tests will be required of visitors, they will need to be actively screened and won't be allowed indoors. The government estimates 96% of long-term care residents have been fully immunized. Meanwhile, 99% of essential caregivers have received their first dose. Among them is Michaela Wilson. She's the co-founder of Senior Support Services a care company in Southern Ontario that physically and cognitively assists seniors. At Humber's, Rajesh Dave speaks with Wilson, who says the reopening of long-term care homes was long overdue.
3: What are your thoughts on this as someone that works very closely with seniors?
0: It's
4: frustrating
0: that it's taken
4: this long. So. Retirement homes and long-term care homes were the first wave of vaccines. So everyone in a home, in the homes, have been double vaccinated for four months now. Why has it taken that long for people to be able to see their loved ones? It's beyond frustrating. And I'm sure maybe people have heard of the term like caregiver burnout. right? And it's been so you know, intense for that one essential caregiver, right? We have families that can only have one person visiting their loved one and they have to decide which family member it is, which daughter it is. Is it going to be a private caregiver? Cause they can, you know, spend more time with them. And they literally are the only people that are allowed to care for, for their loved one. And they're also been double vaccinated because they were in the first wave. So it's been months of that full protection, and I'm not saying, you know, COVID should be in homes and I don't care, but, you know, we've come a long way. We know how it spreads. We know what to wear, proper PPE. We get, people get tested every time they walk into a retirement home or a long-term care home. And they're vaccinated. It should not have taken four months for for the government to figure this out.
3: What are your thoughts on the government's response in general to COVID-19 and how it's affected seniors disproportionately, especially those in long-term care homes?
4: I think it comes down to the idea and the fact that Western culture just does not respect seniors like other cultures. They do not look at seniors like, you know, a quality of life. And it's also, Western culture is very heavily into the idea of just you know, life and keeping people alive. And we don't have conversations around death and dying. And I like to relate it and it sounds weird. It sounds odd, but when we have animals, right. When we have, we have dogs and cats and they start suffering. Right. And, and, you know, they're diagnosed with cancer. We put them down, right. Because we don't want to see them suffering right. But with humans. It's like, We need to keep them alive at all costs. It doesn't matter if they're in a four by four room. They can't even pick up the TV to watch, you know, a show. They must stay alive, which is kind of odd because when you think about long-term care home, the life expectancy is less than five years. You're not going into a long-term care home to live 20 years. You know, an average is five years and that's like a, that's a generous, thing. A lot of people die within, you know, two, three years of moving in there Mm -hmm. and we've already had a year of their life with no visitors and and nothing to do, right? People aren't going into long-term care homes to live, you know, an amazing, you know, longevity of a life. And we've just completely ripped people's quality of life because of our fear of COVID. And I get at the beginning, keeping people out and what they had to do because it devastated long-term care homes. But we've come a long, a long way from that. We came a long way from that, you know, eight months ago, right? We figured it out. So the response has just been so poor. And again, just focusing on keeping them alive and nothing to
3: do with quality of life. Um, do you mind speaking a bit to how the pandemic has affected your company specifically, uh, Senior Support Services?
4: Yeah, so it impacted us a ton where I would say 80% of our clients were actually in long-term care homes and retirement homes. And then it took a shift because then all of those clients were either being moved back home mm-hmm. so they could be surrounded by their loved ones and we were caring for them at home. But we lost so many clients and not because of COVID, because of isolation we had about three clients that went from almost 24-hour care from families and us, and then they went to nothing. And we'd have to Zoom them and they'd go, well, where are you? Why aren't you coming in? Right, And then they'd pass away. And loneliness does kill people, right? Social isolation, they say, kills you faster than smoking six packs of cigarettes a day. Right. And we're not even realizing how intense social isolation is. Um, And it's impacted our company of just like, we've just had to wash our hands from so many clients that were such a big part of our lives.
3: That was Michaela Wilson, co-founder of Senior Support Services.
0: Ontario has announced it will offer mental health support for underserved Black, Indigenous, and Francophone post-secondary students. The move is part of the Roadmap to Wellness initiative announced last year. The province will distribute $240 million to support innovative projects at select colleges, universities, and Indigenous institutes. Shifa Nasir talks to Ontario's Associate Minister for Mental Health and Addiction, Michael Tabello, about the latest development.
2: Could you describe what the end goal of the initiative is here? Because as I understand, it's part of the Roadmap to Wellness initiative.
3: Yes. So the Roadmap to Wellness, what it does is it seeks to define each of the developmental stages in a person's life and looking after the needs of that individual based on what uh, requirements are there for support so for instance in the grade schools we made investments in mental health care workers in high schools uh, we did the same and in universities and colleges we helped create and sustain programs where students have the ability to utilize on-campus services to help with mental health issues In addition to that, we also created virtual supports and the virtual supports are in the form of internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy that are available to everyone in the province and anyone over the age of 16 can utilize them. Highly successful, over 70,000 people are registered and using the program right now in the province.
2: When you say mental health support for indigenous students and black students specifically, what does that mean here?
3: Okay. So... I talked about the lifespan, which is one of the ways we try to identify services that are geared to the particular ages of the individuals. The second thing that we looked at in the roadmap to wellness was to create what we call a stepped care model. So that means the lowest, uh, least intense type services to the most acute care necessary. And that continuum we try to establish within each of the geographic areas within the province. The third part of the development of the plan was to develop culturally sensitive services for, for individuals that have different needs. So for instance, the Francophone community, the black community, the indigenous community, people that have neurodevelopmental disorders, the LGBTQ2 community, because each one of them needs to have supports that are specific to their community mental health and addictions are stigmatized and it's very difficult to uh, to provide supports because we can't talk about it at home. It's a taboo subject. So what we're trying to do is introduce and ensure that we have culturally sensitive, trained individuals that are able to build those therapeutic alliances in the different communities. And that's a key part to the roadmap to wellness. It's something that I'm extremely, extremely sensitive to But when you have a mental health issue in some of these communities, we repress it, we hide it, we don't talk about it. And of course, when you do that, it aggravates the situation and a problem that could have been resolved very easily becomes a very complex problem later on in life. And we know, for instance, that 70% of the mental health issues that we face as adults had their first manifestation in in childhood or adolescence. And If we invested in providing the supports there, a lot of these problems wouldn't become exacerbated later on in life and more difficult to deal with. So the whole idea is to make sure that when we talk about it, we say to people it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to get help.
2: Could you explain to me what projects are being launched to help institutions cater to students' needs?
3: So what we've done is we've uh, expanded programs in universities and colleges and provided additional funding for more healthcare providers to be within the system to be able to provide supports to individuals. The whole premise behind investing at colleges and university levels is that there is a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on students. Especially during these difficult times with the pandemic, the fact that there's not a lot of in-class learning, the fact that a lot of the the old ways of socializing and developing your mind and your cognitive faculties have gone away because you're doing everything on a computer. There's an increase in anxiety and depression and suicide ideation, which is a concern to us as a government. These are the people that are going to take over. Um, So we're encouraging people to get the help when they need it. Um, Again, across the spectrum for children and youth, for young adults, for seniors, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this sector. You know, one in five people is suffering from a mental health issue. And I would suspect that it's probably higher as a result of the pandemic.
5: Anything you'd like to add?
3: You know, we all have days that we feel depressed or that we feel anxious. Know that there's help out there. And if I want to, if I could say one message is know that there's people that care and that will support you. You just have to reach out and and get that support.
2: In conversation with Ontario's Associate Minister for Mental Health and Addiction, Michael Tivello.
0: Voices worldwide are coming together to fill the gap in the city of Toronto. The Beyond COVID-19 Global Systems Gap Challenge is an annual event. It challenges students to find a path towards a solution in an urban setting for everything from arts and culture to economic development. I sat down with Humber's Rebecca Trotway, the manager of the initiative, to talk more about the challenge. Can you tell me the significance of having the Global Gap Challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So in our office in Humber International, obviously
6: the landscape has changed quite a bit in the past over a year now. uh, We went into a pandemic and so our physical mobility, which is something that we um, uh, did quite frequently with Humber students, was all of a sudden, no longer. And while we do have, uh, we did have different virtual opportunities available for students, too, we were really able to take a second and pivot. I know that word is used a lot, but pivot during this pandemic um, and really think about global learning and how to make it more accessible and more inclusive for all students at Humber. And so global learning has a very important place in the development of students, as well as staff and faculty on an academic, a personal, and professional level. But because the international landscape looks so different over the past year, we really had an opportunity to grow collaboration in a sustainable and accessible way moving forward. So I think that's kind of where this all began um, from a very small idea. And because I, you know, last year, everyone was looking for a little bit of hope, looking for something that is going to better um, our futures, better our communities. We were able to get a lot of Really great collaborators on board from other Humber units, Humber faculty, Um, and then the Global Systems Gap Challenge came to be. Really looking to see how we can engage our Humber students, our students at our global academic partners, and prospective Humber students. Have them come together, work in teams, uh, be paired with mentors, get a bit of a taste of that Humber community in an online environment, but also work together with you know all these fantastic minds coming together and having the opportunity to provide. Um, input on the future that they'd actually like to see in a post-COVID-19 landscape. Now, probably post-COVID-19 is not a thing anymore, we've maybe realized, and it's more of a, what will COVID look like for us in the future? Um, But there's been some really amazing work that's come out of the 2020 iteration, and we're really looking forward to seeing what happens in 2021.
0: Why the need gap, and let's say not like revision?
6: Yeah, so I think when we're thinking about the future that we want to see for ourselves, it can be really easy to jump into the solutions landscape. So we're like, okay, this is something we don't like. How do we solve that issue? But what we asked our students to do was to look at really complex problems from a systems thinking lens. So we have um, the Humber Learning Outcomes. They are something that actually launched the day we went into our pandemic lockdown. And so this is our opportunity to kind of try them out for the first, I mean, not the first time, but try them out in this big scale. And from the Humber Learning Outcomes, there's three key mindsets. Those are sustainability, equity, diversity and inclusion, and systems thinking. So we want students to be incorporating all three of those elements when they're looking at their projects or their complex issues. But we know from complex problems that there are already a lot of solutions in place. So it's not as easy as just jumping to saying, like, here's the solution. We use a lot of times the example of housing insecurity. It's a very complex problem, and there are solutions that have been put in place. But when we look at the landscape from a systems thinking lens, we can see that there's a lot of gaps that exist between what the actual issue is and what the solutions that are being presented are. What we're asking students to do is rather than go to the solution space, is really stay in that gap area. So uh, they use a tool called the Impact Gap Canvas, and it helps evaluate Okay, what are all of the different elements that are involved in the complex problem that we're evaluating as a team? What are all of the solutions that are already being presented? And where could there be better connection? Where could we be incorporating more equity, inclusion, and diversity? Where could we be incorporating more sustainability? And how do we get all the actors that exist within this system to be connected and talk to one another? Um, So that's where real, I think real systems thinking and systemic change happens and that's why we really want them to be focused on that gap rather than
0: the solution aspect. How do those global voices contribute to the gap challenge?
6: Having global voices at the table allows for us to open up that discussion, maybe see what has worked or hasn't worked in other areas, Um, what different perspectives are being brought into a situation. We can't have equity, diversity, and inclusion if we're not including a global voice. Ultimately, what we're hoping for is that our students, as well as our faculty and staff, have an opportunity over the next six weeks to develop interculturally. And so if we're not providing students with that opportunity to connect interculturally and develop um, global, globally with different global voices at the table, we're not preparing them to be career-ready citizens upon graduation. So that's something that's definitely ingrained
0: in everything that we do um, and the key element to the challenge. Pride Month is underway and the City of Toronto kicked off celebrations with its annual Pride and Trans Flag Raising Ceremony at City Hall. Universities and colleges are following suit across the city with their own flag raisings, signifying their support and protection for queer students on campus. Here's Radio Humber's Kelly Luke with more.
3: We normally have a big group of people here at City Hall to celebrate the raising of the rainbow and transgender flags for Pride Month in the City of Toronto, but this year, 2021, things are different because of the pandemic. But I hope you'll agree it's just as meaningful, it says just as much about who we are as a city for us to raise once again this year in 2021 the rainbow and the transgender flags.
5: Every year, June 1st marks the beginning of Pride Month, and to commemorate this month of celebrations, the City of Toronto hosts its annual Pride and Trans Flag raising. This year's ceremony was held virtually in compliance with COVID-19 social distancing restrictions. 2021 marks the 40th anniversary of Pride celebrations in Toronto. While large gatherings will not take place, Mayor John Tory announced that various virtual events will be held throughout the city over this coming month.
3: I look forward to marching in the Pride Parade each year along with fellow members of City Council and members of my family. It's a lot of fun, but it also makes a statement about us and about our city. And I know I speak for everyone when I say that we can't wait until we can all celebrate in person again and march in that parade and do all the other things that go with it.
5: Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam was also in attendance during the virtual ceremony. Wong-Tam shared a special message where she spoke of the origins of Toronto's Pride celebrations.
0: It's hard to imagine that over 40 years ago, in 1981, a significant event took place in our city that changed the gay liberation movement forever. So first, the Toronto police raided four gay bathhouses, arrested 286 men, it set off the community, we took to the streets, we were enraged with love and protest, and we did so because we were denouncing state violence and discrimination.
5: This was the event that inspired the first ever Pride celebration in Toronto. Joining the city is Humber College, who hosted their own virtual raising of the Pride and Trans flag. This has become a common practice for colleges and universities across Toronto, helping create a beacon for students to know that they are safe and accepted within their space of school. Chris Lajie is studying finance at Humber College, and says that having an annual Pride and Trans Flag Raising sends a message to 2SLGBTQIA students that they are recognized, respected, and that the school protects their rights.
7: When the city does it, I think it's a pretty formal um, form of expression. But then I feel like when Humber College or other um, campuses do it, it's a way to express gratitude for those students that are members of the community, it's a way to say thank you and, hey, we are here for you so future students can see that, hey, this is a safe campus for you to be in.
5: Kelly Luke, Radio Humber News.
0: Have you been thinking about switching up your lifestyle and maybe a chance to have a shorter commute time and experience the great outdoors? Fear no more, the Northern Ontario Community of Salt St. Marie is offering new residents a $500 pass that highlights the breathtaking amenities and quality of life the community has to offer. The adventure pass can be used towards outdoor activities such as cross-country skiing, fishing, and can be used at sports stores within the community. Radio Humber reporter Danelle Dupuis sits down with the City CAO of Community Development and Enterprise Services, Tom Vare, to discuss this new initiative.
8: Do you mind just giving us a little bit of information on what this pass is?
9: Sure. The Adventure Pass is a, uh, really a welcome tool to promote Sault Ste. Marie to newcomers, to the community. And uh, we've got wonderful amenities uh, in and around Sault Ste. Marie that a lot of people aren't aware of. So we thought this would be a fun way to help promote all the great quality of life features in the area, um, promote all the outdoor activities and adventure uh, that we have here, and also at the same time, let people know that there are jobs available. Um, obviously, there's new careers in remote working, and Sault Ste. Marie is a great place to set up uh, and enjoy a great quality of life.
8: And what types of careers are you targeting right now? I know you're looking more of kind of like a Toronto audience. What types of uh, new careers and new community members are you trying to bring in?
9: Yeah, we have a wide array of careers right now. Uh, Certainly, there are a number of positions in um, high-skilled areas like finance, engineering, and technical positions, IT positions. Uh, We have some major employers like OLG, Uh, Algoma Steel etc that are hiring right now and um, also there's a number of openings in the healthcare professions so all the way from uh, personal support workers nurses to doctors and specialists that the community is recruiting and we also have a number of uh, positions open um, in our business community you know project managers um, communications people HR etc that are available in Sault Ste. Marie
8: and now to be able to be eligible for this adventure pass, is it working permanent or is it full-time position that you're looking for?
9: Yeah, it's full-time position uh, that we're looking for. And uh, people who have relocated to Sault Ste. Marie for a, uh, a full-time position um, or are, um, have relocated to Sault Ste. Marie uh, working remotely are eligible for the adventure pass.
8: And what I know, you just briefly mentioned the venture pass, but how much is it going for? When I spoke with Travis Anderson, he said roughly it's a few hundred dollars. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of an example of what that includes?
9: Sure. Yeah. the uh, The pass can be um, uh, about five hundred, up to five hundred dollars, and it covers things like um, if people are into downhill skiing, can cover a uh, season's pass at Searchmont, our local hill. If they're into uh, kayaking, canoeing, it can go towards the purchase of equipment uh, from one of our local sports stores uh, for activities like that. Uh, for biking, again, we've got uh, money that can be applied with our local stores here to buy new bike gear or bicycle. Uh, we have also some um, excursions. So if people like fishing, you can take out a, a guide and go on a trip uh, with a guide. So uh, there's a few different options for people, and we've tried to really um, put out the best of Sault Ste. Marie, all the great things that are available and also uh, a wide range of activities to appeal to a lot of different people.
8: And now you're starting this initiative at the beginning of June. How long, what's the time duration on it?
9: Good question. This is a a new thing for us and it's a pilot project. So I think, you know, we'll run it throughout the summer and uh, we'll see what the uptake is. So I would envision this summer and fall, we'll run the program and then we'll evaluate and see how we can grow and expand and what the success is.
8: Why is it so important to bring fresh faces and a fresh sense of community into Sault Ste. Marie?
9: You know, the community is going through a lot of, uh, you know, rejuvenation right now. We've seen some uh, great investments in the community Um, from the private sector. We see people moving back to the community uh, but we know that we've got an aging demographic here in Sault Ste. Marie. There's a lot of people who are retiring and leaving the workforce. And we know we're going to have to uh, welcome people back to Sault Ste. Marie and welcome newcomers to Sault Ste. Marie because, um, you know, we just don't uh, aren't producing the same number of young kids that we need to replace all the workers that will be leaving the workforce. So it's an exciting time in the community, a, a time of, as I said, rejuvenation and a time to welcome new people Uh, and make them aware of the great quality of life and options that we've got here in the community.
8: Perfect, Tom. I can't thank you enough for sitting down and talking to me about this.
9: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.
8: That was Tom Ver, Deputy CAO of Community Development and Enterprise for the City of Sault Ste. Marie. Powerful images of fire and erupting
0: volcano are coming out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing the eastern city of Goma under threats of a second volcano eruption. Mount Nyiragongo first erupted two weeks ago, and the population continues to struggle through aftermath tremors and evacuations. At Humber reporter Tina Nalova Ikomelekambi sits down with Don Juan Masudi, a photographer and Goma resident, to discuss about his experience and the city's current
7: state.
5: Can you describe what you saw? Tell me about the experience. How were the houses, the people? How was the atmosphere?
7: The lava was uh, coming towards uh, houses. And uh, for me, like the, the part I saw is that the lava was consuming houses. And then because houses are very close to each other, that's when the it continued. The eruption continued because houses was closer each to other. But um, I think the moment where it stopped, it because it reached a part where there was no house that there was not a house which were closer because the lava started from the north part of the of the town. Yeah, it was coming to the south, and um, people like. People from that quarter had already gone. They already left their houses, but there was other people, other people trying to, like, to get what they could get so that they can save something.
5: So you told me you are still in Goma. Why? I I know there is a possibility of a second eruption and there have been tremors and... There's been an
7: advisory for people to evacuate. Why are you still in Goma? They the that advice came to to us in the morning of uh, I think it's it was Wednesday, it was Wednesday, and they told everybody to leave. Where I live, it's it's a part where they they said they told people to leave, but I was like, I just wanted to to stay again to see. <laughs> To see what will what will happen, but um, I I think most of people most of people left the the, the town, and um, so for now for now I can see that the situation is is uh, becoming calm. Like they there was earthquake, like the last the last um, last week, it was very frequently. But now the the earthquake are not are not they're not frequent.
5: So let's talk about the earthquakes. When that happens, what do you do? Uh,
7: I can say that we are we are that, like they become usual to us. It's not uh, it's not something that scary us. We are just becoming used like usual to it. Uh, but sometimes, like for me, from my desk, I think. If if it happens right now, you can feel it. You'll see my phone shaking, but I can say that it's not uh, it's not that big for us to like to be fearful.
5: My my final question is: um, What does the future hold for Goma?
7: I can say that for us who believe in God, we we think that the future is becoming uh, better, and we hope that um, again. After this, we will come to a, a time where the city will become more and more and more beautiful. We know, like this is not the first eruption. Uh, from from history, they say that this is the third. People keep kept recovering from that, and uh, our our city is becoming like beautiful. It's becoming beautiful, and um, I can just say that. Um, government the government has a lot of work to do not from the eruption part but from the peace because we live in a place where there is still war going on and uh, if the government should um, first first uh, look how they they can end the war uh, I think the city will will uh, will become will become uh, a good place where people can invest their money. We can say that in this city there's still hope like for living. people can come and they live because we live in this place we are I don't say we don't fear we don't fear what's going on and uh, other people if they want if they want to come they can they can come. They still hope for us. It's not just war or eruption there's still other things going on in, in our country.
5: That was Don Juan Masudi talking about Congo's Mount Gongong eruption.
0: And that's it for At Humber. Today's contributors were Tyler Cheese, Bridges Dave, Shifa Nasir, Claudia Kritschka, Kelly Luke, Danielle Dupuy, and... Tina Nalova La Combe lekambi. Our technical producer is Noah Skanga. At Humber is produced by students in the journalism and radio broadcasting programs on 969 Radio Humber.